time to gather together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction that it gives to us. Father, we thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace that is bestowed upon us. And Father, this morning as we open up your word, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, challenge us according to the principles of your word, that we may become more and more conformed unto the image of Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 19. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 19, if you will turn there. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. If you found your way there, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Scripture does say, when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea from beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's wombs, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there were also eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He is able to accept this. Let him accept it. You can be seated. Uh, so what we find this morning is a very interesting passage of uh, the passage concerning divorce. What does it mean to be divorced? What is the, the intention of God and the idea of marriage? What has God created? And what does He allow in this institution that He has created? Because from the very beginning, before we even get into the message this morning, we need to understand that marriage itself is not an earthly institution, uh, that it was commanded and created by God. So it is God himself who gets to decide what marriage is and what marriage isn't. Without getting too political this morning, we need to be very clear that the United States government, that the Supreme Court, that states do not get to decide what marriage is because it's God and God alone who has founded it and it belongs to him. So now as we begin this passage this morning, we're going to start just very quickly, just as we begin, there's just a couple of verses here at the beginning that really Matthew is just using to, to move the narrative along to help us understand what is happening, but really don't tie into the greater context of the idea of marriage and divorce. And so the first thing that I want you to notice here in this passage is those first two verses, and this is the journey to the cross, because this is really what Matthew has been doing throughout the entirety of his book. 
as he's telling this story of Jesus and, and creating uh, this, this picture for a Jewish audience to understand that Jesus is the Messiah, he, he's always focused on that, that last pinnacle there of Jesus' ministry, which is his death, burial, and his resurrection. So all the way along the way, you see Matthew kind of directing this story of Jesus' life, of this continued path towards the cross. And so here at the beginning, at the end of chapter 18, in the beginning of verse 19, is another transition moment as Jesus now is beginning his final journey to Jerusalem uh, for that day when he will be crucified. And in these chapters, really chapters 19 through 25, what we find here is we're beginning to see a theme of judgment. Uh, there's going to be a theme of judgment uh, that is happening on Jesus himself as he moves closer and closer to Jerusalem and will experience uh, his crucifixion. Uh, but also the Pharisees and the nation of Israel itself are being coming under judgment because of their rebellion and their wickedness against God and their refusal to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, Jesus is going to warn them of the coming judgment that's going to fall upon their head uh, because of their presuming to judge him instead of submitting to him as master and messiah. So this is really kind of now this, we've kind of reached the last uh, mark of what Matthew's intending to do as Jesus continues this path toward Jerusalem. And I'm really excited uh, about this next section as we really move into these last chapters, uh, because things really begin to progress along. And there's a lot of really great teaching from Jesus here that I think will be really prevalent to us as a church uh, where we are currently in this day and time. So the first thing I want you to notice about divorce and marriage here in this passage is the first thing here is a question to entrap. A question to entrap, because this is exactly what the scribes and Pharisees are intending to do. And that's found in verse 3, because it says some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, <clears throat> It's important to take a moment here and to set a little background and context as to what is actually happening in this moment. In the time in which Jesus lived, there were two prevailing thoughts on the idea of divorce. And it came from two different teachers. One was Halal, who said that a man really could divorce his wife for almost any reason at all. If his wife took her hair down in public, if she burned the bread, if she put too much salt in the food, if she talked to another man without her husband's permission, really any kind of excuse that a man could find, he was allowed under this teaching to divorce his wife. And in fact, this was the most prevalent view amongst the Pharisees and the other teachers of that day, was that really, for any reason, a man could divorce his wife, any reason he wanted to come up with at all. Now, uh, the other teacher said that a man could not divorce his wife unless she were guilty of a sexual offense. Now, what we find here is what we have found very often throughout the teachings of Jesus as his life goes on, is that any time the Pharisees come to ask Jesus a question, they really don't care about the answer. All they're attempting to do is to entrap Jesus in a certain situation. They're hoping he's going to say something that will allow them to pin him into a corner. And so it's the same thing with this question. They want to come, and in a sense, the question they're asking is, is do you agree with the more popular view of culture, with the, with the, of the teachings of Halal, who says that a man can divorce his wife for almost any reason, or do you agree with the more conservative view? They wanted to really put Jesus in the corner and find out where he stood, because then they could accuse him on one hand or the other uh, of being in, in contemporary with culture or being more legalistic. And we have to remember, too, that the reason that Jesus, the region, excuse me, that Jesus was in at this very moment 
uh, was a region that was under the rule of Herod. And if you'll remember from the story of John the Baptist, Herod had divorced his wife in order to marry his brother's wife. So now they've waited to get Jesus into this moment. So now, Jesus, we're going to ask you this question about divorce. Now, Herod, who rules over this region, he's decided to divorce his wife and marry his brother's wife because he liked his brother's wife more than his first wife. Was he wrong, Jesus, in doing that? So it's a question to entrap. They have no desire to really know the truth. And this is one of those areas where Matthew helps us to continue to understand the true heart and nature of the scribes and the Pharisees, where Jesus over and over has talked about the hardness of their heart. You know, most of us, if we go up to somebody and we ask a question, I would say for most of the times we have a genuine desire to know the truth. We ask a question because we want to understand something better. We want to know a person's opinion. We want to understand their viewpoint. And we want to do that in order to, to bring reconciliation. We want to do that to understand uh, you know, maybe what's going through their mind. But the scribes and the Pharisees, whenever they come to Jesus, have no desire to hear what the truth is. In their own minds, they're convinced they have every bit of truth, every bit of knowledge that they could need. They've already set their mind against Jesus. They've hardened their heart to the truth. And it's no more evident than in this matter when they come and they ask these types of questions. But I want you to notice here that they've given a question to entrap, but I want you to notice secondly here that Jesus gives them an answer to rebuke them. Look at verses 4 through 6. It says, And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore God is joined together. Let no man separate. Now, I particularly love the way that Jesus answers this question. I love the way that Jesus often responds uh, to the Pharisees, sometimes with a bit of cutting wit and sarcasm, because this is exactly what he does here. Because remember, these Pharisees are the men who are held up as the standard of righteousness, as the standard of, of religiosity and expertise when it comes to the law of God. And so when they come to Jesus and ask this question about divorce, and remember, all these people are going to be gathered around listening. This is probably the, one of the greatest things about this situation. So here come these Pharisees, and they've got their garb on, and they come up to Jesus, and they ask this, what they think is a profound question. They say, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to do this? And he turns around and he says, haven't you read the law before? You know, you're supposed to be the expert on these matters. Do you don't know, you asking me, you don't know the answer to this question? Of, of anybody that's standing around here, you guys should know the answer to your own question. So they're always boasting of this knowledge of the law, and you've not even actually read what the law says. And perhaps it could be true that some of them hadn't. Because for many of them, they were more in tune to the traditions of their fathers than they even sometimes were to the actual law and the Word of God. Now, Jesus knows all things. So he knew this question was not an attempt to find the truth, but only in a level of an accusation against him. And so he doesn't begin by taking a side of whether the first teaching or the second teaching that were prevalent at the day is true. But instead, what he does what should be done in every type of situation like this is he goes back to the Word of God. He says, it doesn't matter what an, my opinion is. It doesn't matter what the opinion of this rabbi is or what this rabbi is. If we want to know the truth of this matter, let's go back and see what God has to say about the matter. 
And he even goes even further back because he goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. And Jesus here quotes two, uh, uh, two specific texts, Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So in these two verses, Jesus points out for us really four things about marriage that God desires all of us to understand. There's some clear things here that Jesus is demonstrating by going back to these two verses, going back to the original creation, going back to the original marriage, going back to the intention that God set. Because when we understand where did God found marriage at, he founded it in Genesis chapter 1 when he created Adam and Eve and he put them together there in the Garden of Eden. So the first thing we need to understand about marriage is that God created them male and female. There's a couple of things here. Number one is that God created them male and female. He he gave them specific genders. He gave them as male and female. There were no third options, fourth, fifth, sixth, 152. God created them male and female. So here in the very beginning, God is not only establishing marriage as a covenant between a man and a woman, but he's also establishing what gender is. There is no third way. There is no other options when it comes to those types of things. But there's also the understanding here is that when God created the male and female in the Garden of Eden, God put one man there and one woman there, and there was no other option for the two of them. Now, God did not create Adam and then create 50 women for Adam to pick from. He created one man and one woman. And the reason for that was he was demonstrating this idea of marriage is that one man commits to one woman, and that marriage is permanent and forever. There is no other option for divorce or remarriage because... If Adam divorced Eve, what was he going to do? There was nobody else. There was no choice, to a second choice or a third choice. So in that very beginning of creation, God is demonstrating what marriage is intended to be with one man, one woman in a covenant relationship for as long as they both shall live. Now, he also shows here that a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. Now, the Hebrew word, some of your translations may use the word uh, cleave unto his wife. And the word for cleaving is the idea of a strong bonding together. It's the idea of a glue uh, or or cement. But it also carries the idea of following along closely, as you would see um, with Ruth, who when she would cling to Naomi, uh, or the, the, the men or David's army as they would follow after him and cling to him. It's this idea of being strong put together, uh, of being almost, uh, of being totally inseparable, of not being able to be pulled apart, this relationship bonding together uh, that speaks of, of really kind of the most intimate type of relationship that can be happening. And so when Jesus talks about leaving father and mother, he's demonstrating that the marriage relationship is an even stronger covenant and closeness than even the relationship between a mother and a father and their children. And for those of you who are parents in the room, you understand how much you love your children. And children, you understand how much you love your parents. But the idea of the marriage relationship is that relationship is even so much more stronger than that, that a man would leave his family and start his own family because he has found the one that God has made for him. Now, the modern Hebrew word for marriage is closely related to the words of holy and sanctified or being set apart and consecrated. And so what that Hebrew word for marriage is intending to demonstrate is the total commitment of a husband and wife to one another. Now, the third thing that Jesus is demonstrating 
in quoting these passages from Genesis is that the two become one flesh. Now, the husband and wife in marriage become one flesh. Now, sometimes you will hear people try to teach that the idea of becoming one flesh is, is a referral to the actual, like the consummation of the marriage uh, uh, in a sexual connotation. But that's not true. The actual covenant of the marriage is when the husband and wife become one flesh. When they stand before God and they make a vow before each other and before God and before witnesses that I am going to be with you, a covenant has been made before God and the two of them have become one flesh. And becoming one flesh, they no longer have even authority over themselves. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Because now they have become one. And if two things have now become one, they are now inseparable until death. It is a covenant relationship that that husband and wife have made with one another to commit to one another. Again, for as long as they both shall live. Now, the fourth thing that we see in this passage is that God has joined them together. Every marriage is put together by God. Every marriage is in the eyes of God. Now, this is interesting to think about because this institution belongs to God because God has created it. Every marriage is, is commanded when God has commanded that a man would be joined to a woman. It's a marriage even regardless of those who are outside of the faith of Christ, marriages are all standing before God. Those covenants are being made. And he holds lost people to the same standard as he does saved people in the idea of what marriage is. Because there's no difference here in the idea of that covenant that being made. Now listen to what uh, John MacArthur said. He said, God engineered man and woman to complement, support, and give joy to each other through the mutual commitment of the marriage bond. It is by His divine hand that they are created to fulfill one another, encourage each other, strengthen each other, and produce children as fruit of their love for each other. Whether they recognize it or not, every couple who has enjoyed the companionship, happiness, and fulfillment of marriage has experienced the miraculous blessing of God. There is no good thing in marriage that is not derived from Him. So God put Adam and Eve together in the garden, and they were joined together in marriage. So Jesus' purpose in going all the way back here to the book of Genesis, all the way back to the creation story to demonstrate marriage, was to show that God's intention for marriage is this lifelong union of a husband and wife, never to be broken or separated. So for those who have been standing around, for the Pharisees, for the disciples, there was no shadow of any doubt what Jesus was saying here in this moment was that in his mind and in God's mind, they both held to a permanent view of marriage, that when a husband and wife were together, they were together forever. One commentator said, at best, divorce and remarriage is only permitted by the Lord, never commended and certainly never commanded, as some of Jesus' contemporary rabbis taught. So this would have been flying in completely in the face of everything that most of the Pharisees would have been teaching. Because as I said earlier, the, the view of halal was that you could divorce your wife for almost any particular reason. There was really no subjective standard of what divorce looked like. And so they were teaching this on a practical level, and perhaps many of them had even had, had committed this same sin in, in divorcing and separating their marriages without really just cause. Now, the third thing I want you to notice here, Jesus gives this answer to rebuke, but I want you to notice here a direct avoidance of the truth. Look at verse 7, because Jesus now, he answers their question. They've asked a question. 
He refers them back to the Word of God. He gives them clear teachings of what Jesus, or excuse me, of what God has instituted marriage to be. So really, that should have been the end of the matter, right? They ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his, divorce his wife for any reason at all? And Jesus says, God said that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined together, and the two shall become one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Period. End of story. That should have been the end. That was the complete answer that they needed. Jesus said, no, the answer is no, because God said, let no man, not the husband, not the judge, not anybody else, let no man separate what God has put together. But notice their question. Again, because they're not there seeking the truth, it's like when you have a little child, right? And your child comes up and asks you for something, and before you can even get the answer out, they're already asking you another question because they're really not looking for the answer. They're just really just trying to get some, convey some information here. So the, the Pharisees are not looking for the answer to the question. So when Jesus gives them the answer, it's like they don't even hear it. They said, well, then why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? So they're still seeking to entrap Jesus in a trick question. They say, well, Jesus, you're saying that, that marriage is to be a permanent relationship between a husband and wife, but Moses said, Moses commanded that a certificate of divorce could be given and a husband could send his wife away. Now, the passage they're referring to is found in Deuteronomy chapter 24. I want to read that to you this morning and then put a little context on it so we understand exactly what's happening here. It says, when a man takes his wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband or sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife. Since she has been defiled, for it is an abomination before the Lord, and he shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So, a lot to unpack here in just a short amount of time, but what we need to understand is that in this period of time, uh, really women had no rights at all. So before they were married, they were really viewed as, as property of their, of their father, and then when they got married, really viewed as property of their husband. And so a husband really could, for any reason at all, to say, uh, I'm going to uh, divorce you. I'm going to, to, to kiss, uh, kick you out. And so we have to remember that in the Old Testament times, the penalty for adultery was stoning. So what we're talking about here with indecency is something that was some level of, of immorality, but didn't quite go to the level of adultery. Because if adultery had happened, the woman here mentioned in this, art, this uh, passage would have just been stoned. So we're talking about something that fell short of full adultery, but still was some kind of, uh, of immorality or some kind of indecency that caused this husband to desire to be divorced from his wife. Now, what was happening, particularly at this point in time, was that the husband would kick the wife out, and then because that would happen, she could never remarry. So she would be left out on her own, out to, to not be able to take care of herself, to take care of if she had any children or anything like that. She was just left out on her own, out on the streets. And so because of this reason, Moses said that a certificate of divorce was to be given. And the reason Moses did this was not because God had changed his view of marriage. He hadn't changed his mind on how this was to happen. 
Uh, but because Moses talks about this, and we're going to see this in just a moment, but Moses realized that people were hardened in their sin. And sometimes these men were just wicked, evil men, and they were going to do whatever they wanted to do because they were hardened in their heart. And, God, and, and Moses said, well, if these men are going to do these kinds of things because they're hardened in their sin, it should not be that the woman should have to suffer the consequences of that because she cannot remarry, because she has no proof of this. So he commanded that if the husband was going to divorce his wife, they had to give her their certificate of divorce, which would allow her then to then be remarried because she could show that be it she had been released from that first marriage. I know it's a lot to unpack right there. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. So what the Pharisees are attempting to do is to take this specific instance of Moses dealing with the hardened sin of a people and an allowance that was made and attempting to pull that out of its context and to apply that now to the entire nation of Israel. They're saying, well, Jesus, you're telling us what God said, but we want to show you what Moses said. And Moses gave us permission to do this, and that's the reason that we still do these things today. So the next thing I want you to notice is this clear directive that Jesus gives. Look at verses 8 and 9. Because now Jesus is going to help them to understand this. And he said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So there's several important things that Jesus points out here. Number one, that Moses did not command a certificate of divorce, but he only permitted it. Moses was not establishing a new law. Moses was not commanding and saying these things should be done. He's saying because you're sinful and because you're unrepentant and because you're rebellious, I'll permit this thing to happen, but only because of your sin, only because of your rebellion. And only because, again, he was looking out for, and through God through him, was looking out for the case of a man who was rebellious and sinful and who was going to kick his wife out really for no good reason at all to make sure that that woman was able to be taken care of. Moses only did this, Moses only did this because of the hardness of the hearts of the people. The third thing we understand is this, is this was never God's intention for marriage. Because Jesus says, it has not from the beginning been this way. He said, you need to understand that just because God allowed this to happen, and God was merciful on many occasions. There were often times where even God allowed people who had committed adultery to not be stoned to death. You think about David. David committed adultery. David should have been stoned to death according to God's law, but God showed him mercy and grace in those situations. God is showing mercy and grace to the nation of Israel in this situation through this allowance through Moses, but this was not the standard. This was not God's intention. Sometimes God allows those things, but he's not setting a new law. He's not setting a new standard. He's showing mercy and grace to a wicked and rebellious people. And so Jesus is helping them to understand that this is not what God's intention is. If you want to know God's intention for marriage, I'm going to tell you one more time. Whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Now, God's standard of marriage does not allow for divorce except for immorality. Now, the word used for immorality here is the word uh, pornea. It's the word where we get pornography and other things like that is used in the context of Scripture. It really refers to a broad range uh, of sexual sin. 
And Jesus had referred to this idea of an allowance for divorce before in the matter of immorality back earlier in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. And really, he gives the same kind of idea. He says, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let her give him a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced man, or excuse me, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So what Jesus is meaning by this is that in God's standard of marriage, there's only one way or allowance that God gives for the separation or the breaking of that bond of marriage, and that is immorality, sexual sin on behalf of, of one of the people in that covenant relationship. Now, let's be clear. Just because those things happen doesn't mean that divorce has to happen. God is not saying that if sexual sin is committed, it's automatically a divorce. He's just saying if it happens, and by some reason it's so grievous, so horrendous, so spectacular, that reconciliation cannot be made, that in this one instance, for this one reason, we, I will allow that. Again, he's not commanding it. He's not commending it. He's saying, I will allow it. I will permit it to be so. Because even in those situations, it's God's desire that repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation could recur. Because that's what God desires to see is that, listen, we're all sinful creatures. We're all going to do wicked things. We're all going to do sinful things from time to time. And sometimes those sinful things are grievous. And God says that even in the context of marriage, that I would hope that forgiveness and reconciliation and repentance would incur so that that marriage could be restored and brought back to where it needs to be. But what Jesus is helping us to understand is except in that one instance, if a divorce occurs for any other reason... And that husband and wife are separated. They may be separated in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of God, that marriage bond has still not been broken. So if those people get remarried, they are committing adultery for a second time because they're getting married, while in God's eyes, they are still committed to one another. So what Jesus means by says that if anyone divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries her commits adultery as well. Spurgeon said, in the case of fornication, upon clear proof, the tie can be loosed, but in no other case. Any other sort of divorce is by the law of God null and void and involve the persons who act upon it in the crime of adultery. So here Jesus gives us this clear allowance. I even hesitate to use the term permission. I like to think that he gives us an allowance that this can happen in the matter of infidelity or immorality. Now, later on in the book, uh, as later on, Paul would give the only second allowance that we find in Scripture for the incident of divorce, and that is in the marriage relationship between a believer and a non-believer. But it is only in the context if the non-believer refuses to live with that believing spouse. So it's not that just because somebody is a believer and a non-believer that a divorce can happen, but it's only when it gets to the point where the non-believer says, I refuse to live with you any longer. I refuse to be married to you, and I will not allow this marriage to stand. So there's the only two allowances that God gives here in the Scripture for this situation to happen. I love what one commentator said. It says, marriage is more than human joy. More than a biological purpose and means, it is the outworking of God's creative act and therefore should be a consecration. Because we understand that marriage is created by God as a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. 
And it's this beautiful thing to look at, to see how Christ loves his church and laid down his life for his church and cares for his church and loves his church and forgives his church. And the relationship between Christ and the church can never be broken, never be separated. There is nothing that we can do to separate us from the love of Christ. And so when we look at a marriage relationship, that relationship between a husband and wife is supposed to demonstrate to the world, this is what it looks like to be a part of the covenant community of God. This is what it looks like to be a part of the family of God, that this man and this woman love each other through thick and thin, for better or for worse, through sickness and in health, till death do them part. Now, that's a hard thing for the world to understand. Because really, the common practice in Jesus' day has become the common practice in our day. In Jesus' day, they'd say, well, my, wolf, my, my wife... Uh, Burned the bread, I'm going to divorce her. My wife put too much salt in the food, I'm going to divorce her. And what do they say today? They say, oh, well, we have irreconcilable differences. I remember not too long ago, I read an article between uh, two people uh, who were fairly well known. And they said, well, our creative directions are just going in opposite ways. He wanted blue carpet, I wanted red carpet. In the world we live in today, it's very quick and easy. I, I, every day on my way to work, going through town, I pass this sign that says, you know, easy divorce, $500. Just go pay your money, sign the paperwork, and you're done. What a tragedy. What, what a tragedy on the idea of what marriage is supposed to intend what marriage is supposed to demonstrate, of what, of what glory is supposed to be recognized there in the marriage relationship between a man and a woman. So it's a hard thing even for the world today to understand this idea that a man and woman would commit themselves. And really, let's be clear, God's intention was that people would get married at a young age, commit themselves together, have a family, and live together for many, many, many years. I say that because we, we've developed as a culture to the idea uh, that, you know, you need to live throughout your 20s, and then maybe when you're in your late 20s, then you might find somebody to marry, and then maybe you might find somebody to marry, and then by the time you're 40, you start having kids. Well, brothers and sisters, you missed 20 good years of life, of being together with somebody who you love and you care about and raising a family, and it's a tragedy in many different aspects. So it's a hard thing for the world right now to understand what real marriage is and what God's intention for marriage is. But you know what's interesting in this passage? It was a hard thing for the disciples to understand. I want you to notice here a hard saying to understand. Look at verses 10 and 12. So at this moment, the Pharisees have, have gone away. And this is very interesting. And to be completely honest... I don't know whenever I've read this passage before that I've really paid that much attention to the question the disciples ask her in this moment. But they asked this question, they said, if the, if the relationship of the man and his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. Well, well, like what? The disciples clearly understood what Jesus was saying. Is that if you get married, that's it. If you get married, you're with this woman for the rest of your life. And the disciples were like, wait a minute, Jesus, I don't know if I like that. I, I want to I have some outs here. You know, I'm, I'm really particular about the way I want my bread cooked. And if she burns my bread, I want to be able to get rid of her and find a different one down the street. 
It's legitimately what they're saying. They're saying, listen, Jesus, if that's the case, if I have to marry this woman and be with her for the rest of my life and there's no outs for divorce, it's probably better just to not get married at all. And so Jesus responds to this. Because what had happened is the disciples had been influenced by the current societal views of the day. They had allowed the teachings of the world to influence their own view of marriage. And and brothers and sisters, don't we see that? In the American church, in so many churches, they have allowed the world's view of marriage and gender and sexuality to influence their view instead of holding to the clear commands and definitions that Scripture gives us. So notice what Jesus says. He says, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. So basically what he's saying is, he's like, there are those who can be married and they should be married. And those who are, will not be married and they shouldn't be married. So he says, not all are called to live that married life, but most people will be. But he points out this idea of being single, because this is what the disciples were pointing to, is this idea of living a celibate life, of a living a single life. And Jesus is saying that's, that's a commendable effort, but not everyone can do it. In fact, most can't. He says most are going to be married and have children and continue to further the spread of the gospel and of the kingdom because God gave marriage for the good of people. Remember when back in Genesis again, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. God created marriage for the good of people, for each other, for the man and the wife, for the good of each other. So Jesus here is making clear, the disciples point to this idea of a celibate life, but he makes it clear that only a few select individuals can do it. And he points out three. Number one, eunuchs uh, who were born that way from their mother's wombs. These are people who have conditions that, that, uh, that are defects, that, that they didn't have no desire, sexual desire, have no desire to be married or be in a type of relationship. He says eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. These were people who worked for... Uh, figures, uh, politicians and kings and princes and, and, and rich people. And so oftentimes the, these men would be uh, forced, forcibly castrated by their, uh, their owners or their uh, bosses in order to prohibit them from having relationships with uh, either concubines or wives or mistresses or things uh, in their boss's household. And then the third one says eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now this is not, again, an actual physical making themselves eunuchs, but a person who makes the decision that I'm going to live a celibate lifestyle for the good of the kingdom of God. We see Paul talking about that. If a man can remain single, he should remain single. But if he cannot, if he should not, he should be married so he doesn't burn with lust. Because what he's talking about here is that there are some people who realize that God has called them to a place in ministry that they don't want to be distracted by the things of this world. They don't want to be distracted even by a family because Brothers and sisters, let's be honest with each other this morning. If you're married, I'm not saying that it's a negative distraction, but if you're married, husbands, you have to care for your wife. That's a care you have to put out. You have to look for those things and do those things to care for your wife. Wives, you care for your husbands. And when you have children, you have children to watch out and care for. And there are some people who say, I want to be able to put everything about my life into the work of the ministry, into the work of the kingdom. And if I'm going to be persecuted, I don't want to have to worry about who's going to provide for my wife or who's going to provide for my children. I don't want to have to worry about those things. I want to give everything about myself to the kingdom of God. And Jesus said there are people who will be called to that lifestyle, but they are few and far between. 
He says, if they do it, it's a glorious thing. But you need to understand that it's not the standard. It's not the reality. He says, he is able to accept this. Let him accept it. As we close out this morning, I want to close with a couple of things. Because I want to wrap all of this up, and I want to help us to understand where we need to be. Number one, we need to understand that divorce is never God's intention. Just because God made an allowance for divorce does not mean that he intends for it to be used. Just because God made an allowance for divorce does not mean that it pleases him. And in fact, it's, it's, it's God, the scripture is very clear that God hates divorce because, secondly, it tarnishes the beauty of marriage in the picture of the gospel. So when we understand what it does, and it's, it's, it's this tarnishing of, of what marriage is supposed to be in this picture, a beautiful picture of Christ in the church, we understand why God hates it. We understand why he doesn't intend for it to happen. We understand why he never commands it, but only allows it. My brothers and sisters, I also want to be clear this morning, is that divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Okay? We're all sinners. We have all done things that we should not have done. Sometimes we do those things before we have become Christians. And the good news is, is that under the blood of Christ, those sins are forgiven. And sometimes we have done those things after we have become Christians. Because either we didn't realize, either maybe it was a period of time we were being rebellious, but the good thing is, is that under the blood of Jesus, those things are forgiven as well. Again, we're not wiping away the seriousness of the matter. We're not saying that it wasn't serious, not saying that it wasn't sinful, but what we're saying is, is that God has forgiven us. But, let me be clear, I'm not saying in this moment that because God's forgiveness is great and merciful and just, that now that we understand what the teaching of Scripture is, we should not go out and say, okay, well, I'm still going to do this anyway because I know God will forgive me. As Paul said, may it never be. But we do want to understand here the clear teaching of Jesus, that here is what God's standard is when it comes to marriage. One man, one woman, committed to each other for the entirety of their lives for the glory of God. and the beautiful picture that it brings about. But also understanding that there may be situations that arise because of the hardness of someone's heart, because of their wickedness, because of their refusal to repent, that a situation of immorality, because that covenant has been broken in that kind of relationship that God says, I will allow in this moment for this to happen. But that it's never His purpose, never His desire, never His standard only his allowance and that we should seek in our own marriages that if we ever kind of get to that point where we're tempted to think about those things that we would pray to God and ask for him to help us but it's just, this is what this room of people is for as you look around this room this morning we are here to help one another that God forbid any of us in this room ever gets to this point where we're tempted to think about this idea that we should go to one another and say, I need your help. I need your guidance. I need your help to walk us through this process that we can reconcile our marriage and our relationship together. But also understanding that the grace of God is abundant and free and new every morning. And that His blood has forgiven us of all of our sins and our transgressions. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for this text. Lord, a challenging text it is, especially in the world in which we live, and really, Father, the, the low standard that marriage has now. Lord, the, 
The standard that you've created is high. It's lofty, it's good, it's glorious, it's worthy, it's, it's true and just. But Father, the world has reduced it down to almost insignificance when it comes to the idea of marriage. Lord, may our hearts and our minds, Lord, not be tainted by that understanding. May we not take that world's understanding of marriage and begin to believe it or accept it. But may we always hold to the high standard of righteousness that you've given us here in your word. And Father, I pray that we would live our lives in our marriages in such a way as to demonstrate your relationship with us, your love and your grace and your mercy towards us. May it be demonstrated in our lives between us and our spouses. May people be able to see our marriage and see a clear picture of your love for us and for the church. And we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' mighty name.